Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a managing partner leading both the Paris and London presence for his firm. An international M&A specialist, he also heads his firm's international committee, coordinating relationships with leading independent law firms throughout the world. Travers Smith, managing partner, David Patient, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. Very nice to be here, and thanks for having me. Great to have you as a guest in our program, David. Let's jump into our questions. We expect that business development has been part of your success. Can you share with our listeners your approach to business development and why it's been successful for you? Sure. Well, I started my career as a lawyer in the city of London in 1990. And if I'm honest with you, I didn't know really what the words business development meant. I was very fortunate to have a partner who who mentored me. He's now actually our senior partner, and we work together extremely closely. And he taught me everything I think I needed to know about business development. He taught me about how important it was to be in the front of mind of clients. He taught me about the tireless pursuit that you sometimes have to have of your target. He taught me about the importance of personal service, about thinking about your clients when possibly they're not thinking about you. Here at Travis Smith, we're not a huge law firm. We have 360 lawyers. We're about 600 people in total. And we pride ourselves on providing a very personal service. It's all about the relationships that we have with our clients and, of course, with our own people. So this personal service has always been very important for me. I got sent over to uh, to, to open our Paris office. You, you mentioned that at, at the start. In 1999, I, I opened the office up and effectively, I was given a greenfield site. And based on the experiences I'd had of working in London with Chris Hale, the senior partner who I uh, said was my mentor, I went out and had to build a business effectively from scratch. I did that by contacting um, you know, the specialists in the local market, the French lawyers, the French lawyers who would have clients who would potentially need English law services. And then when I left Paris, effectively 15 years later to come back to manage the firm here in our headquarters in London, you know, I'd built a very successful business, which had really been built on the back of obviously selling the reputation of my firm, Travis Smith, selling my practice and what I did, which was hopefully of interest to French clients, but also just simply personal relationships. It's so important, I think, to make sure that you know as many people as possible. I've always said that actually the best people to do marketing for you are your peers, people who talk about you and your firm and and raise your game. And we were very successful there. And what that led to was sometimes me being contacted by two or three different people from different law firms or other professional services organizations, all asking me if Travis Smith would like to work on a particular client matter. Um, That was also the approach that we took to our whole international strategy. You mentioned that I had led our international um, efforts and our board prior to becoming managing partner. Travis Smith is fairly unique in the London legal market in the sense that it's one of the very, very few top flight firms which does not have an international presence other than the small office that we have in Paris. Most of our competitors have offices around the world. So our approach to doing work for clients, doing international work for clients, is different in the sense that we don't rely on our own branded offices. We rely on the strength of the relationships that we have with like-minded, high-quality firms from around the world. And how have we built those relationships? Well, we built them by spending time with each other, visiting firms around the world, receiving visits from firms here, 
And all of that over a period of time brings that kind of trusted relationship that you need in order to get things done. So when I phone up a lawyer in Madrid at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon saying I've got a client who needs a piece of work, it doesn't get put to the bottom of the intro as it might do by the Madrid office of a transnational firm because effectively, you know, they're a captive client. They phone me back straight away. We get the matter dealt with. So that's been an also an important part of how we've developed our business in the UK. And, and the objective in building international relationships has always been first and foremost to ensure that we are able to give our clients the best possible service, what I call an a la carte menu of possibilities. You can choose the right lawyer for the right piece of work in each relevant jurisdiction rather than having to go to your own local office. But of course, what's happened as a result of that, and as a number of our competitors have, as I said, gone off and planted their own flags around the world, um, we've ended up in a situation where we have become a London-based referral law firm of choice for anyone looking to instruct an English law firm on a matter requiring English law advice. And that, of course, is perfect for a managing partner because you can grow your revenues without having to buy in a new team, build a new practice. It's simply the cost of a few planes and and trains. Last response, because you really just highlighted what makes that different, right? The idea that you're not investing or not making a permanent investment, you are investing somewhat, but that also that that can be a differentiator versus other firms. And you're also able to pick a business when there's a conflict, which I think is, you know, pretty terrific. So that approach, this partnership approach globally, was that something that was well thought out? It, was it strategic or was it something that just occurred over time where there was a need for partners in other countries and, and you went out you know, as client need really presented itself? It's a very good question. I think the truthful answer is that it was more by accident than by design initially, in the sense that most of our competitors in London were starting their own international expansion in the mid to late 90s in particular. And the partners of the firm at that time decided that this was not something that we really needed to do. We were a member of a rather informal European club, which subsequently disbanded at the point in time that most of our UK competitors took over a number of the European firms in that network. So I think actually we were stuck in a situation by the time of the start of this century where we had lost our friends, our European friends in particular. We were looking at competitors who were expanding aggressively overseas. More and more US law firms were coming to London. That's a trend which hasn't stopped. And so I think actually it was at that point in time that the design, if you like, came into it and we set off in the early noughties to develop this strategy of having best friends, close friends, non-exclusive friends across the globe. And that was something which I led with our then managing partner, who has remained very closely involved in our international strategy all the way through. And it's terrifically enjoyable, actually. I would suspect it's much easier and more fun to invest that time and effort into going abroad, visiting people, spending time with them than it is in necessarily managing a series of offices around the world where, you know, as you said, all kinds of different conflicts of interest can arise. Yeah, there you go. And I think, you know, the flexibility to be able to, you know, use and have non-exclusive relationships is, you know, absolutely can be a differentiator, especially when a matter is presented that has a very unique need. And then you can go out and, and obviously, if you don't have a relationship, you can establish a new one or ask for referrals from those partners, which is pretty significant. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Nicole. I mean, 
Travis Smith is a full-service law firm. We have market-leading practices in corporate, in employment, pensions, financial services, you know, disputes, real estate, and so on. Um, for us, it would have been impossible, I think, to build up the same quality and depth of practice in a number of different jurisdictions across the world. Whereas here, as you suggest, what we can do is we can pick the right person, the right law firm for an employment matter, for a disputes matter, for a regulatory matter, and so on and so forth. So um, we feel that uh, whether it was by luck or design, we've ended up in a really good place. Yeah, no, terrific, terrific. So I want to go back to one of the first points that you made about you know what you learned from the person who's now the senior managing partner when you were starting your career about business development. You talked about the need to stay front of mind with clients, that there is you know the need to continue the pursuit of clients, and of course that personal service and really thinking about your clients. You know, for those partners that are just starting their business development responsibilities, those that are coming to you, you know, what do you convey what to do? I mean, that because that whole personal service, personal touch, kind of dipping into your personal network, being out in the community, the business community. There's different thoughts about that as you go around different parts of the States. And of course, when you go into different countries, you know, what does that look like to you? And, and what recommendations would you make to those people that are just starting that process? It's tough, isn't it? Because, you know, if like me, you've joined a law firm, a thing that you've never really had an experience of. My father was a doctor. He wasn't a lawyer. Um, he didn't have to do any business development. Um, what advice would I give to young people starting out today? The first thing I'd say, look, it's all about the people, the people that you will meet on your voyage of, you know, meeting clients, meeting peers, focus on the people, listen to what they want, you know, look at what's going on in the market, you know. So for here, it's very obvious at the moment, you know, Brexit, for example, dominates what's going on in our, our news and our markets. I'd also tell them, you know, be brave, be tactical, persevere, going back to the, the point I made at the beginning about tireless pursuit. But also, you know, if you get rebuffed, don't take it personally. There may be a reason why you've been, you know, turned down and you can always come back to it another day. Um, it's a long career certainly for those of who want to stay in the law, you know, so it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if I look back to, to what my mentor, our current senior partner, taught me, you know, he would go after a particular opportunity and, you know, he would build it up. If he didn't succeed at first, he would try, try again. And it would, you know, sometimes some of these things would take two or three years. I would also encourage uh, young people starting out to think about how they build their own network in the sense of, you know, network of peers and other, you know, professionals. Going back to the point about, you know, if you get people talking about you, if when you walk into a room, you know, lots of people, it sort of, it stands out for people. Um, I think I would also give them a little tip to say, right, you know, actually, when you're thinking about clients and how you're going to get paid, you know, you do need to remember that not every dollar of revenue is necessarily a good dollar of revenue. You may not be doing this work profitably. And the people that you should be looking for are the people who need your advice on a regular basis. They may be in businesses where the legal part is, is under-resourced for some reason, or they may actually be the kind of client who use other people's money to pay lawyers. That's always a good way to get business, I think. Excellent. Great points and great advice. So looking back at your career, is there a particular success story that either was a surprising situation where you were able to acquire a new client or grow a current client into a larger client? Is there a success story that pretty much defines your success in business development? 
Well, if I look back to you know what I created in Paris from a from really a standing start, I'm immensely proud of that. We know with and work with all of the best French law firms. I have deep connections within all of those firms, not only at the level of partner above me, my level now, but also the juniors who I used to work with alongside those French partners who are now more junior partners in their law firms. Um, The relationships we built with French clients as well, which I've been able to pass on to the partner who succeeded me. I'm very proud of that. I'm also very proud, going back to what I was saying earlier about the way in which we've developed our international practice. If I'm honest with you, when we started out, um, we were somewhat derided, particularly by the legal press here in the UK, for taking this approach. How can Travis Smith survive without an international network, they used to say. And then it did slightly depress me on one of my first visits when I visited a leading Dutch law firm and met a senior partner from that firm who is now an extremely good friend. And this senior partner looked at me and he said, so David, exactly who are Travis Smith? And I thought, right, we have a long way to go here. But you know, this is a firm which prides itself on being innovative, which prides itself on finding opportunities in the market, entrepreneurial. And if I take, for example, our disputes practice today, um, disputes was not front and center of, of this firm's strategy at all five or six years ago. We took a very bold decision um, that we would actually go adverse to certain financial institutions where they were not our clients, whereas lots of our competitors say we will not sue any financial institution, even if they're not a client. And that's proved to be a fantastically successful story for us and resulted in our disputes team doubling in size. And I expect it to grow by another 50% or even more over the next few years as we have picked up more and more mandates based on the back of a reputation where you know we've done stellar work for clients who have been involved in big cases involving financial institutions. We're less involved in that now. We're more on fraud, competition, litigation, and so on and so forth. But that's an example of, I think, you know, when you back the right horse and it runs away for you. So that was not a strategy per se, but became a strategy as that approach, you know, through some success or through the ability to develop a reputation there where there was some willingness on the part of the firm to take a different direction? It was a strategy. It was definitely a strategy. You know, we saw an opportunity in the market and it probably, I couldn't tell you the precise moment that it came about, but I think we were approached by actually one of our our competitors here in the market. And a lot of our disputes work does come from referrals from US law firms and from big major international law firms here in London who have conflicts or who have a commercial conflict, you know, like the ones I I described where they just decide, actually, we're not going to do in this market. And I think what happened in this particular case that we were approached by one of these law firms and said, you know, would Travis Smith be prepared to advise a client against, you know, X bank because we can't. And we thought long and hard about it. And we decided that we could because X bank was not a client. And whilst obviously uh, X bank would not probably instruct us during the course of the trial or rather the dispute that ensued and the trial, actually the way in which we behaved on the matter and the quality of the work we do meant that at the end of the particular trial, you know, it was kind of, you know, shake hands, no love lost, you know, perhaps we'll use you one day. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, and that's, again, goes back to those deep relationships and being in the market. And, you know, one of the things we talk about, David, is when people, when the unaffiliated contact you, 
which is based on reputation, you know, that's really a key factor. And it seems like, you know, obviously in the beginning of some of these projects, that was the case. People were contacting your firm because you sat in a unique place. So let me ask, so 2008, 2010 here in the States, a lot of our professional services organizations started to feel the pressures of the changing economy. At that point, I was actually working for a firm. We had a presence in London and it was very distinct in 2009, 2010 that business in that market was definitely having to react to some changing market conditions. How did your firm respond to those changes and what have been the lingering effects? Have you changed your pricing structure? Are you working with alternative fee arrangements? How has changing market conditions changed the way you do business? Well, look, it was a turning point, wasn't it? Uh, in, certainly in the London legal market, you know, um, it was definitely a seller's market up till then. And it's not stopped being a buyer's market since then. Um, luckily, um, you know, the business rebounded relatively quickly. It was a tough period. I remember it very clearly. The, the end of 08, the first half of 09 uh, was a very tough time, particularly if you were in a transactional business. So, yeah, I think we changed a number of things. I think, first of all, clearly uh, the way in which we go about pricing things has changed because certainly in the UK, for a lot of the work that we do these days, it's not about you know hourly charge-out rates. It's about what's the price for this? What's the fair price for this? Um, we don't go about you know offering the lowest price in order to get a piece of work. You know, you can always get a piece of work done more cheaply. So we will only sell our services where we think we are going to be paid fairly for the work that we do. But, you know, the market's moved on. Law firms are providing their services in lots of different ways these days. You know, we go back to, you know, the original LPOs. I actually remember visiting uh, an LPO in Mumbai in 2007. And, you know, here we're still talking about it. A lot of firms have done things. They've set up their own offices in places like India or South Africa or Poland or wherever it may be. A lot of our competitors have also set up what they call onshoring facilities. So that's places in, you know, operations in cheaper locations. Not much cheaper these days, but still cheaper. Um, Manchester, Belfast, you know, Scotland, places like that. Um, you know, we have had to react to that. We've had to make sure that we remain competitive. We haven't set up our own onshoring facilities. We use all kinds of different ways to provide cost-effective services. Sometimes we subcontract work. So we might use another law firm in, in a cheaper location in the UK to do a piece of work for us. Normally, that will be a sort of due diligence piece of work. We have home workers, in other words, people who have left us and moved to different locations in the country, but who still want to do work maybe a few months a year. We use alumni, we use contract workers, we use paralegals, and of course we use, you know, technology for what is what it's really worth at the moment. So yeah, we've had to respond and we will continue to respond and we will continue to innovate and we will continue to find ways to provide the best possible service and the most cost-effective service to our clients. Thank you. That was a complete response. And I actually feel that a lot of times when we talk to guests on our program, they might talk about one or two things, but in totality, right, there's a lot going on to create value for your clients. And you know, being able to respond and have, you know, a virtual type of lawyers that are virtual, lawyers that are in a home-based environment, being able to manage the ebbs and flows. I mean, that, you know, obviously in a lot of other businesses has been the way that they've been able to remain competitive. So, so I appreciate that and the fact that there is a variety of things in play. We mentioned innovation earlier in the conversation, and I think that was more in responding to the market and the needs of the market. And obviously you just touched on technology. What are you seeing in your work that you feel is truly innovative in the practice of law today? 
What's truly innovative? If I'm honest with you, not a great deal. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of what I call innovation by press release. Um, so people talking about innovative ways that they do things. But look, no, there are some good examples of the ways in which people have brought new techniques and ways of working to the market, which are for the benefit of clients, clearly, and, you know, alternative providers, um, people who can provide lawyers on demand, um, people who can provide yeah, the axioms of this world. But I'm not sure that we're really at a place where many law firms have done things which are that innovative just at the moment. Yes, they've listened to their clients. They've tried to find ways of providing services more efficiently. You know, we're bringing in pricing people. We're bringing in contract managers. We're using technology. We're using contract automation. We're doing all those sort of things. Um, I think that the other innovations that people are bringing to the legal world are uh, more around things like apps. So, you know, a lot of firms and, and we're not alone uh, there. Therefore, you know, we have apps um, that clients can pick into and get information that way. One of our major competitors has uh, an online service here in the UK, which I believe you can use if you want to see whether you've got any sort of shared dealing obligations for reporting anywhere uh, around the world. That's pretty innovative, I guess. But no one's fundamentally changing the model just yet. But I think they're thinking hard about it. And we are having to address the world where the employees that we want are millennials who want a certain amount of instant gratification. They want the place to be exciting. They want it to be, you know, tech savvy. They want it to be diverse. And so we're having to be quite innovative, I think, about the way in which we, you know, demonstrate that, you know, we are a great place to work and you should come and work here rather than Google or somewhere else. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And it's interesting because I was going to ask the question, we are seeing a trend in the States that law school graduates are actually not going to firms, they're going in-house. And it's not because of work-life balance. It's because of their interest in the company. It's because a, it's a different training environment, possibly access to more of the legal tech that's out there, especially if it's a technology company. And they seem to be attracting a lot of that group. So that definitely is part of the trend. So I could see, obviously, in a leadership position that you'd be concerned about, you know, can you still attract those team members to your firm? So let me ask. So you have a lot of energy. You've obviously had a strong career at Traverse Smith. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? Now, well, as managing partner of this law firm, which is, you know, a huge pleasure. It's a firm I've been at for all of my career, 28 years. I love this place and I've seen, you know, huge changes over the years here, whilst also retaining the core values of the firm and the culture, which is such an important part of this place. Um, I love now being in the position where, you know, I can influence things. I can try and make changes happen. I can try and improve the working lives of the people who work here. I can try and bring in innovation. Um, those are the things which sort of, I suppose, you know, keep me really excited um, about the job. And, and it goes back to what I was saying, really, I guess, a little bit at the beginning when you asked me about what advice would you give to a young person? I love the people. I love, you know, spending time with the people, whether it's the guy in our general office, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, heads up our kitchen team, a new trainee, a partner who was already a partner when I joined the firm, you know. So from all kinds of ages and backgrounds and experiences, I love, you know, spending time with them and seeing them develop and, um, you know, hopefully enjoy working at this firm. Mm, terrific. Great response. Thank you. 
David, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? No, no, just thank you for having me. It's been a privilege. And I think we've got a very exciting period ahead for the legal profession, certainly in the UK, and I'm sure it will be the same in the US. I think we need to keep evolving, keep thinking about what our profession and our law firms need to look like in the years ahead. And of course, as as I say to my partners here, particularly with uh, Brexit looming on the horizon here, we'll always hope for the best, but make sure we plan for the worst. I know it's a a great last point and one that, you know, people need to take to heart because you don't know what's going to happen next. David, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you.